Hello, and welcome to Endpoint Management Today, the Big Fix podcast. My name is Rhonda Student Kaiser, and I'm the Director of Customer Experience for Big Fix. This episode is what we call a rewind, the audio-only portion of content that was originally created in another form, a webinar, conference speech, or a product demonstration that we wanted to share with you here. We love our customers at Big Fix, and we're really happy when they love us enough to participate in a customer-focused interview session, which we can then share with you. This customer-focused session, Customer Focus, a Global Enterprise Solves Software Asset Management Challenges, was recorded in August 2020. Hello, and welcome to Big Fix. I'm Dan Imbach with the Big Fix Marketing Team, and I'm very happy to have you joining us for this discussion. Software asset management is a critical component of a healthy endpoint deployment. Knowing what software you have installed, not installed, and having this information reconciled with your licenses or lack of licenses can heavily impact your costs and even your security, especially in this new world of work from home and BYOD, or bring your own device. So to to discuss this relevant topic, I'm joined by two experts in this field. Our host, Dan Corcoran, is Director of Sales here at Big Fix. Dan is immensely familiar with our topic today as he ran deployments in several businesses before joining Big Fix. And we're delighted to be hosting Virgil Prather, who joins us from Alight Solutions, where he is the leader of software asset management. Gentlemen, Thank you both for joining us. And Dan, I'm going to get out of your way so you can lead this discussion. All right, Dan. Thanks a lot. And Virgil, uh, thanks for joining me today. And, you know, if you don't mind, give us a little bit deeper understanding of of how asset management has played a a role in your career and, and, you know, uh, some more thoughts on that. And then we'll we'll get into some some questions. Sound good? Yeah, it sounds great. And uh, thanks. Thanks for the introduction. I appreciate all the, uh, the nice work. I actually started software asset management uh, unintentionally. I've been doing software and uh, I should say IT management and IT project management, program management for a long time. And what I always try and do is figure out how to leverage my budget so that I can do all the things I want to do. And um, I first started with software asset management probably 20 years ago. And it really wasn't even anywhere near the same as it is now when I used to work for the phone company. And I was part of the team that brought the phone company back together after they got all split up. Sharing software was one of the things we needed to do. And so um, I started off there and I found the power of doing software asset management, either correctly or incorrectly, because there's uh, there can be winners and losers. And so I've usually stayed in the technology space from the cutting edge, bleeding edge point of view. How can I capture current spend, not waste it so much, and then reclaim that and then do something else more profitable? And that's really how I ended up in software asset management, which I've pretty much been exclusively doing for at least the past five years, because I don't think that there's a better way to capture spend, make that spend available and then do the other projects you really want to do than otherwise, other than stop paying for software you're not using. Right, right. All right, good, good, good. Yeah, and in, in my experience, uh, you're, you're spot on there. Um, I was uh, involved with a very large distribution company, and, and and especially if you're in a low margin business, you know, we don't we don't usually get the opportunity to do things twice, you know? So, okay, uh, what are we, you know, what are we going to be doing uh, with, with this, you know, if, we, if we're not managing this asset correctly, we don't really have the opportunity to go out and, and use funding to, uh, to to help with that next project. So that's that's great stuff. So one of the one of the first things I'd like to to kind of uh, talk to you about is, you know, 
audits, right? It's a terrible word. It's it's the only word that should be a four-letter word that's not, in my opinion, right? So with audits, um, you know, I mean, yes, HCL is a software vendor, and, and I'm sure that at you know, some point in some places that we've done audits as well. But but really, when you think about an audit, what are some of the data points that you find software vendors look for when they they come in to do an audit? I'm I'm assuming you've been through an audit if you've been doing this asset management. Um, and we'll we'll try not to uh, to uh, you know put any of our our software vendors on blast, so to speak. But you know, tell us you know what what have you found to be the things they look for? Soft, you know, audits have a lot of different flavors. And so, you know, the first thing I always look at is this a formal audit, is it an informal audit? And then what are they trying to accomplish? Audits are expensive. Uh, they're expensive both from the cost to the company, the cost to uh, the auditor, the company auditing you, the cost to you internally because it gets turned up and you have to apply resources, sometimes really high level resources to respond to that. So it's costly on both sides. And so when you get audited, they're go- they're risking their relationship in some fashion. They've come to you, they're selling you something. And the idea that they- someone who sells you something can audit you, it- it- it's really kind of unusual. I find most audits are really not an audit, but they're more of a sales process trying to help you unless it gets into the formal audit stage. And then you get the software compliance involved. And software com- compliance is a profit silo for different software companies. And Gardner publishes uh, details on these. And some companies are in that 10, 15% of revenues coming from software audits. Other companies are 40 to above 50% revenues come from software compliance. And so depending on the flavor of the company, the flavor of the relationship, they'll have different goals in mind. But basically they want to make sure, are you paying for everything you have installed? Are you running your business with it? And do you have extra stuff installed that maybe you're not using, you're not paying for, you're not updating? It could be brand killing to them. So they don't want you to leave a bunch of old software floating around that you've abandoned because if that gets hacked, their brand can get, uh, their brand can get labeled. And all software asset management is about projecting revenues to Wall Street. They want to be able to have real, have revenues that they can project in the funnel, project up to the shareholder, you know, to the people, uh, you know, doing all the, the, uh, earning stuff to the, to you know Wall Street and that, and then they want to meet those earnings year over year. And so if they can condition that spend and land that spend in an organized fashion, they can keep their stock prices high, they continue to make money. But if they go up and down and up and down, their stock price takes a hit, they don't have the money available and it's like a death spiral for a company. So ultimately they're trying to keep their stock price high and everything resolves out to that, I think. Yeah, I would agree with you there. You raise an interesting point about stock prices and about keeping that that sales going. How do you think the audit landscape is going to look when we come out of of our current situation where you have a lot of people working from home? You've got a lot of traditional sales opportunities are either being pushed or are evaporating. How do you see the the landscape going for software audits and and software vendors in general uh, based on our current landscape? Well, um, audits are going to continue because they're very profitable for companies. Um, they're going to keep continuing and they, they set it up that way, depending on the company where, um, where, where 
they're going to keep that profit silo open up until the point when it doesn't make sense for them to keep it open. So I think audits kind of got invented to keep them in business, but then they found out it was so profitable and companies aren't really responding accurately to it so that they tend to overpurchase software, which means that they buy more of their software. So it's almost like a sales pump that can last five, 10 years. And it keeps you locked into their company as well because they come in and audit you. They want to make a profit on the audit, but they want to also get you to have a spend commitment that exceeds your current contract so they can stay in the in, in your company for an extended period of time. And if you have a commitment, I've got to spend X number of dollars with this company for the next several years, you're building your your IT stack based on that assumption. So the longer they can stay in your environment, the more they get to make money and keep their competitors out. Fair, fair enough. Uh, when you when you think about the 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 actual process, right? And this this is one of the things that I found. I'll, I'll share a quick story with you. So I used um, um, uh, inventory and and did it. You know, went through an audit with a um, a uh, a vendor. And you know, first of all, we found that um, uh, we had made a mistake, right? We had included a piece of software in a gold image and it got deployed to over 5,000 endpoints. Now we owned 350 copies of the software. Uh, you do the math, it's well over a million dollars exposure. Um, anyway, we luckily we, we had you know, some, some things in place and we had some, uh, some discipline in place to go in there and do internal self audits on what we considered the hot five vendors. And um, uh, we found it, we fixed it. And, um, you know, sure enough, we get audited six months later and, and, you know, we took a, a million dollar exposure and, and yeah, I had to write them a check, but it was like seven grand, right? I don't know about you, but I'd write a $7,000 check on a million dollar exposure in a New York minute. So, um, but what I found interesting in that whole process is when we provided them data, you know, the level of data that they wanted, right? So from my experience, they wanted to look at all of my active users from my, from my active directory or whatever my, my LDAP was. Um, they wanted to know the active number of machines. And then they wanted me to, to give them you know, reporting on whatever asset management tool I'm using and, um, and kind of do that correlation, right? Right. And so have you had a similar experience in, in the data that they wanted and then have you ever gotten any feedback on the data you provided when you when you've done that from the vendor? Oh, absolutely. And so, if you're in a more formal audit situation where you have a company come into you and they're bringing a third party auditor in there, they have different goals. They have completely different goals. There's this little overlap between them, but but these goals are are very very different. So the publisher will come in and they want to make money on this profit on this on this engagement. And they want, they want you to start paying for stuff that, that you weren't using. And if a vendor comes in and they want to audit you and they're bringing a third-party auditor, this is costing them tens of thousands of dollars. So they're putting money up front to come and audit you. This is, not, this is not just a check. They've developed business intelligence that they have an impression that you're overusing something and that all your overuse is going to cover all of the costs, allow them to make a profit. Now the auditor, and there's a, there's the big three, you know, Deloitte, PwC, KPMG, they're on both sides of the equation. So they want all the data possible so they can give an audited result. And that audited result develops a profile overlay of your company, audit after audit after audit. 
And they're keeping track of your company the same way credit uh, agencies keep track of personal people's credits. And so my my theory is if, if I'm a software company and I want to audit someone, I'm going to go and say, I want to audit these 50 companies. I'm thinking, you know, we might be doing it, but I can only afford to audit 15, 20, 30 of them, whatever, whatever it is. I have to create my budgets for them. And you come in and they'll say, yeah, these seven, don't bother auditing them. You know, we, we don't think it's going to be worth your time. We'd really be interested in auditing these companies based on your understanding of, you know, what it is. Because each time they can create that whole profile overlay, they have access into other people's, into how you're using other software in your enterprise. So if someone else comes to them and says, I want to audit for this smaller deployment and They've got information that says you might be uh, overdeployed. They don't necessarily share that, but they provide guidance that it might be a good idea. And then they keep making money. That publisher makes money. And and you're just constantly chasing your tail because you're spending all your money on solving these things out. So in your contract, you have to be very specific about what data you're sharing and how you're providing that information. And you need to pair it back because these, these come in boilerplates and they say, uh, arbitration, all required effort, and this is the whole raft of information you have to give. At the sales time, when you're signing that contract, you have to reduce that. You have to significantly reduce that. And if you don't spend the time on the contract, they just line you up to audit you in the, in the renewal cycle. So if you have a five-year deal at that three-and-a-half-year deal, if you're not spending enough money, they audit you, pull out extra money, and then get you to extend another five-year deal. Because a lot of audits get paid with future spend not current dollars. And so if they can have you commit future spend to it, they can stay in forever. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the uh, involved process. So one of the things too that, uh, that I found in, in my own experience in, in, in going through these audits is that um, um, a lot of the times what we find is that there's some, some basic business practices that we can discover to, you know, a way to do them better. So as an example, um, it used to be that we had um, uh, our organization, they really, you know, everybody has to have the latest and greatest, uh, uh, you know, package, you know, from, from say, Microsoft, right? So if we're talking about Office, right? You know, and, you know, there was always this uh, from on high, um, you know, if everybody has the best package, like, well, yeah, that's great, but that's, that's at a cost. And it used to be, well, yeah, everybody needs this, you know. And, and so once you have an actual tool that can give you metrics, um, you can go in there and, and actually look at what's being used in, in the life. So from my own perspective, I'll tell you my story, and then I'd, I'd like to hear if you have a couple of, uh, of um, uh, stories about that as well. So from my own, you know, we really we didn't have a, an enterprise agreement, but we, we definitely had a renewal cycle. You know, to your point, where they're they're looking for us to keep that spend up, even though we didn't have the enterprise agreement, um, we were able to go in and find that um, even though the you know the edict from on high was everybody gets the best, uh, we found that you know 50% of the people hadn't even opened half of the tools. So now you're talking about you know how much time, energy, and effort is wasted in an organization by not fully understanding the, the asset stack that you have, but more importantly, the utilization of that asset stack, right? And, and does it make sense to reduce the stack, right? We found multiple tools where it's like, yeah, we have to have this, the business relies upon it. And there's three people using it once every two months. Come on, right. 
You know, it's a billion, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Um, but in the Microsoft instance, you know, we were able to go out there and, and show rather than, you know, going by our gut feel, show the actual utilization statistics to say, listen, you can reduce your footprint and in, in your spend in these following areas. And I can return $500,000 back to you in, in our instance. Um, different conversation when you come in with those facts. So tell me, have you, have you experienced any of that? I mean, have you been able to take some of these, you know, expense centers and, and turn them into profits, so to speak, or, or at a minimum cost avoidance? Well, before I worked here, I worked at another company. And when I started, I started in the, the desktop space, which was really everyone's desktop, all the applications available under that. And I was going through a Windows XP to Windows 7 upgrade. And we had to upgrade all of the products in the whole company. And we decided to go right to 64-bit, which was just this huge undertaking. And we had over 100,000 endpoints deployed all around. And we had thousands of different builds that everyone got. And there was multiple ways to determine whose everyone's build was. And so um, everybody thought it was super complicated to figure out how do I skinny this up? They, they imagined all this complexity there because they don't have visibility to the data. So your external audit people, they need their data, whatever it is, but your internal people need to see that data in a dependable way. And they don't want to be, they depend on your data, it's not exactly correct, and then later they get audited and it's their budget that gets impacted. So somebody's budget is overspending this money for, for simplicity's sake. And I hate golden images. There's that, that golden image is just a recipe for over-installing software. Yeah. What you need is base builds per business silo per role. And you have to make sure you name the roles very generically, general user one, general user two, nothing that has to do with authority or management, whatever. If you give an extra tool to the supervisor and then you give another more expensive tool to the manager, everyone who gets a promotion wants that tool. They don't care whether they use it because they relate it to themselves. And it turns out, you look at your base build, these 15, 20 applications everybody gets, then you can pull out okay, well, what, what is my team that I'm targeting? Is it 50? Is it 5,000 devices, whatever? I can go into Big Fix, pull out just the applications that that team uses. What are all my outliers? And I can say for these 10, 15 applications that everybody uses, 70, 80, 90% of people use this. There's no spend reduction in that. Then you come up with an easier process, not a, quite a formal change control process, to allow certain users on that team with just a management approval to download these applications easily, you automate it, but it requires utilization. And then they have to utilize it. You can even tie it out with Big Fix. You haven't used it for 90 days, pull it back. I have it and just create that, that, that use case there so that you're just installing 10, 15 applications, whether it's accounting or HR or whatever team it is, then select users get software downloaded if they actually show utilization. And if you show any budget holder, you're deploying this and it's being, it's being used less often and we, can, we have the data to deploy it correctly and you can save money, that's an easy case to make, particularly if they can depend on the data you're providing them and it actually results that when you deploy it, you don't break anything. And Big Fix does that all day long. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we, we found it to be very useful in, in especially when you start looking into more formalized processes. Now, are you, are you currently using any integration with Big Fix into other tools, into, say, uh, 
a CMDB or or your you know service desk system so that you can automate some installs or, or any of that work? Uh, in fact, where I used to work, I was using Big Fix 7 and I was using ServiceNow, Jakarta, Indonesia, IJK level. And I was able to get Big Fix to feed ServiceNow because ServiceNow has a dashboard that's on everybody's screen and you can give them visibility into it. So if you can link Big Fix Inventory with ServiceNow, and I've got the same relationship where I work now, we use Big Fix Inventory, we use ServiceNow. I think instead of trying to provide an extra dashboard, an extra user interface to people that already have enough user interfaces and they're, they're senior management, they don't want to learn another thing, give them access through the, through the tool they need, and then you manage it all into the CMDB, then the data is there for everybody to use. You have one data entry point, one data collection point, and a single source of truth. You can provide all of your software reporting right out of Big Fix Inventory to the publisher, and then you can provide all your internal use and your reconciliation through ServiceNow, and then you can even link it with ITSM activities. So you deploy a patch, you deploy something, and some of them are broken. You might just silently pull that deployment back, roll the rest of the devices back that haven't even done that, refixed it, and roll it out again. So you're reducing your time out of your ITSM area, which then claws back these resources to do better things. And then you have one data source for everything, and the CMDB is like your data hub. Great, great. Yeah, I've, I've heard several stories from from our customers, and, and quite honestly, some some things that I did myself in that you know, you you look at the entire uh, aspect of software acquisition, there's a lot of folks that just write the check to your point earlier. You know, they're just, you know, hey, I need new software. I'm just going to spend another, you know, oh, it's it's a thousand people. Hey, let's just spend $500,000. Why not? You know, we've got that. So, um, but what we found is people were using the data, similar to what you're talking about. You pull that inventory data. It tells you what's installed. Uh, especially if you've gone in, uh, in our case, we did this where we populated what we owned. So now we can have those Delta reports from an IT perspective very quickly, right? Um, I owned the, uh, the application stack and everything on the end user compute environment. So now I know what I own. I know what my Deltas are. But more importantly, I know who's not using it, right? So if I've installed a three or $500 package on a user and they're, you know, it's been six months since it was launched. I'm pretty confident I can claw that back and I won't write the check. I'll just go ahead and bring that license back and redeploy it. Um, how well, and, just, uh, and just to interrupt, because yeah. I didn't finish my last or I got distracted. So when I started at the last place, $4.3 million cost center, 43 people. We upgraded to Windows 7, but then really started doing the software asset management piece. And so we were able to claw back enough software to change it from a $4.3 million cost center to a $5 million profit center, but wow. not just by creating, you know, now we're a, we're a rent silo and you have to pay us more out of your budget. We went in and said, we're spending this many million with this publisher, this many million with this publisher. How do we turn down our corporate spend and set up a virtuous process? So when you follow the process, it's a win-win-win. You save money in your budget. The IT teams can fund the amount of work that needs to be done, and you can land that into finance so that you can actually reduce that spend out of the renewal. So not only did we go from being a cost center to a profit center, but we reduced our total spend on software in excess of the $5 million that we're getting paid to us, and then different 
business owners could say, this is the functionality I need. This is how I line up this functionality with this spend. This is how I turn it up or down. And once you can do that, you enable all your business partners to do the business the best way because you're giving them the, the view of the functionality you need. And then they get rewarded for reducing their platform. So if somebody has the same budget and they don't get any extra special spend reduction by reducing or uninstalling or your IT team just have more work to do. So you really got to set up this virtuous cycle, turn down spend, share that spend reduction with the budget holder, the IT team, and then the people doing stuff, set up a virtual process for that. And for sure, just like Gardner says, you can turn down a lot of software, five to 30%. You consider IT is 10 more percent of the total spend. Software can be 30% or more of that budget. You can turn down a percentage of your company's spend just by reducing software and correctly deploying it, which if you compute those dollars to spend versus dollars earned 15, 20 times, it takes 15, 20 bucks to get a dollar to spend. If you save a million dollars, it's like finding 15, 20 million dollars worth of new business. Say a million and that goes up. Your software asset management department can, can, can compete with your top sales silos on how much revenue they're bringing back to the company by reducing the spend. Wow, that's that's incredible. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a very, um, in business, unfortunately, everyone gets caught up in what they're doing and it's very overlooked and that cost avoidance really contributes a great deal to the bottom line of an organization. I know in the, the last project that I did, um, you know, we, we went through and, and using the power of, of the Big Picks platform, across all different areas of the business, right? Multiple distribution centers, you know, we found there were 40 different ways to build a laptop. Come on, right? Um, you go through and you you look at all the efficiencies that you gained, the number of, of personnel that you have to dedicate to get that efficiency, and you start to see some incredible cost avoidance and cost savings. You know, I uh, uh, one of the things I, I first told, you know, senior management, I said, listen, if I came to you and said, I can you know, hire two or three more, you know, third level, you know, technicians, but you don't have to post a job and you, you don't have to look for them because they're already here, but I'm going to eliminate that amount of work. What, what would you say? And they're like, well, I would say, why didn't you do it yesterday? Right. And so that's one of the things that we kept finding. Um, so in, in all of that, uh, you know, a lot of those calculations were hard dollars. Tell me how you would go about helping somebody with the soft dollar calculations. You know, where are the where are the things that you really save? You know, we, we've mentioned engineer time. You know, we've mentioned software spend. What are some more of the soft dollar things that are maybe a little bit harder to prove, but quite honestly, they they bring in value to the equation when you go through and you start to really pay attention in a in a grand fashion. Well, not even in a grand fashion, in in a, in an adequate fashion. For your assets, um, some people look at different things. So you have to look at what your company is looking at, and then you have to figure out how to tie the soft, you know, the soft spend or the soft savings into the hard dollar savings. And that's where I say, you know, it's easy to just come back as software asset management and say, I looked at all this, and now all we need to do is change this out and change this out, and then you can reduce your budget 20, 30, 50 percent on this spend. If you bring it to the person in charge of the budget, they're like, do it. And then you have to do it out of your steady state spend, right? Okay, I got my same team. I got a thing. I got everything to do for the rest of the year. And now right. someone's decided to put their priority project in front so they can reduce their budget. So 
typically if you back to that base build process, you know, these base build products, they can get billed back to the individual departments based on usage. It depends how that how that spend is shared out. So if you take your spend people and you say, let's really target the spend as it's used to the departments that use it, big fix inventory can give you that. So when you start you don't have just a bucket for databases and it doesn't matter whether this team's good at database deployment, this team's really bad at it. The team that's bad at it has to pay a lot more than the team that's good at it. And when the team's good at it and they start to back out that spend, maybe they don't capture dollar for dollar every spend they back out. So maybe they capture 60, 75% of that for a year or two. And then after that, they get it into their budget. But this year they capture 70%. Next year, they capture a little bit more. And then when the money becomes available, the IT team can fund the things that they need to do, which means they're not going around funding all the stuff that are doing the things because everything's out of date and they're trying to fix it up. Yeah. So you get it fixed up on the front end and you just take it right out of the spend reduction. You build it right into funding your team. And then if everyone's budget goes down, even if even if the budget holders, that, that budget goes down and they don't get all the money, in the year one or year two, you, you share that year one or year two, and that year one or year two is your perpetual bucket that you use to fund all these other things. Yeah, that's great. And, and especially when you look at, you know, budgets being cut significantly with, uh, with, you know, I hate to keep coming back to our current situation, but let's be honest, in business, it's very tough right now with um, with uh, uh, with budgets, with, with getting things done, uh, revenues are, are being impacted. Um, you know the the end user, the buyers, the the people that are consuming their their trends are are entirely different now. So anything you can do to help um, you know, steady the ship, so to speak, is definitely going to be a benefit. Uh, one of the other things I'd like to talk about is, um, and I could say one of the other things for the next you know four or five days. Uh, but one of the other things um, that, that I like to bring up is when you look at the user interaction. Do you find that making it easier for the customers or the, you know, for my situation, my customer was, you know, a remote sales force for about 6,000 and then another 9,000, you know, internal um, uh, users or, or devices. And, and what we found is that the more we could make it easier for them uh, across the board, the more engaged they were and the easier it became for us. So I'll, I'll give you a quick uh, um, example. We we first started down the path of really trying to systemize and and eliminate a lot of redundant work. And, you know, if somebody called in and, and had a problem, about 65% of the time they thought we did an okay job, an okay or better job. Um, when we started to engage the customer more, for instance, I'm doing a massive software rollout. Well, why don't I make it, you know, make it an offer for them so that they can deploy the software in their own time frame? Right. So if I'm a salesperson, I don't know if they're have got some emergency meeting going on at three o'clock on a on a Friday or not. So I'm not going to push software then. I'm going to let them decide over the next two weeks. Right. Um, we found that doing that, um, one of our you know actual soft dollars proven into be hard dollars, um, allowing the users to do that, providing them quick fixes. You know your your VPN's broken and you're four hours away from a facility. If I can, you know, allow you to to reinstall that over the internet very quickly, you know, and in, in, in a supervised fashion using BigFix in, in an outward facing relay, I was able to go ahead and get them back up and running in ten minutes, as opposed to them losing a day of windshield time, right? 
So the, the, the number that we finally got to on this after, quite honestly, only about 18 months of transition was our, um, our good or better uh, acceptance went up to 85%, right? Now you would think, all right, well, great. You threw a ton of bodies at it and you have a bunch of people running around. No, what we were able to do is uh, take a head count in you know the 170 plus across the, uh, the teams and got it down to below 100 uh, because of the efficiency we gained. Right. We, we estimate we pulled about uh, three million dollars annually in spend just on personnel. Now, it wasn't a isn't this great. We're going to you know get rid of everybody. We found places for these folks to add value to the business. Right. So elaborate and tell me some of the stories that you have around, you know, how you've been able to do those types of things and and how you've seen great improvements in your environment based on, you know, the the improvements you can make because the reliability of the information and the tool set that you're using. The more reliable you make your information to the to the budget holders and the people that are the decision makers, you can present that, the more latitude you'll get in doing things. So you kind of marry your low-hanging fruit with tasks that have to be done. You go and capture some low-hanging fruit spend reduction with some activities you got to do so you still can get the spend out of it. Um, one of the easiest ways I did, and, and I've done this more than one place, is that people build their laptops. A lot of times, like, you might have thousands of locations around the country, but you might have five or 10 hubs where you build devices at. Someone's laptop breaks, they have to ship it to you emergency overnight, it gets rebuilt and shipped back. Big Fix inventory or Big Fix allows you to throttle it. And you can actually build devices. So if you get a base build for somebody and you have that build captured, they can just plug into ports at almost any location, hit F12, and it'll rebuild itself overnight in a real throttled fashion that doesn't impact your network or your bandwidth or anything like that. So once you can start enabling building out of more places, then you can capture this multi-million dollar spend bucket that you're just shipping laptops back and forth. And at the same time, nobody's impacted. Everybody can go in, okay, I'm going to go to the office. My computer's acting funky. I think, I think it's just a problem. I'm going to plug it in and, and you can even do it at home. Just leave it on overnight at F12 to come back in the morning. It rebuilt itself. If you can enable building everywhere. You've got that big bucket of spend money that you can recover, and then you can start moving that through your organization. So that's one of the things is you can enable builds more places as you start to standardize these builds for the different teams. Um, and, and then that just keeps working itself through any kind of process that, that has a lot of extra parts to it. You know, do you really have to do all those extra parts? So you know, that, 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 that laptop rebuilding is, is a, a big one for spent. Um, at least I've seen it. And I typically work at larger billion dollar companies, you know, companies have been in business and have decades of software. Um, it might be different with newer companies, but, uh, you know, I find that that's a good way into the process. And once you start clawing back these dollars, people bring you in more, the further in, in the front of the process you can be brought in, the better of a process you can, you can make for, for deploying out these changes or adding new functionality or even just staying current on the software you have, which I think is a big deal. If you start to free up people not to do all the busy work, then they can keep you current in your current release levels, which keeps the functionality the most current. It keeps the security environment the most clean. And then it just keeps building in this virtuous process, I think. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, and, and you're really bringing up some great points today. And 
you know, if we think about what what we're seeing, you know, in the current state and, and quite honestly, what business was like six months ago, there are so many opportunities to really just, you know, kind of uh, um, take care of the business in a, in a more accurate fashion. But quite honestly, without adding an incredible level of work to do it. Right. I remember uh, the first software audit I tried to attempt prior to having Big Fix um, six months on five vendors. I personally was putting in 10 hours a week. The data was done. It was all added up. We went through everything. I had, you know, 60, 70 locations where they were giving me at least an hour a week. So you, you would start adding all of this time up. You get all this data. And then what did you have? Uh, not a whole lot better than when you started, other than everybody knew you were looking now. And that's the only thing you gained, right? Um, we brought in... Uh, the big fix platform and, and use it for so many different things. But, you know, from an asset management perspective, it, it really did kind of bring home, this is exactly what you have. This is exactly what you're using. And, you know, here's your opportunity. So um, especially now. So how is, how is our current situation impacted, you know, you and your organization around work from home? I mean, obviously you're, you're working from home and I am on, on this, uh, on this chat, but how has that impacted you? And, and how did you find that, you know, having the big fix platform available to you kind of helped, you know, did it help? Did it hinder? I mean, tell me some of the things that you found using, using big fix, managing the, the new work from home. And so I can speak to big fix inventory pretty well. And I like the big fix platform from the point of view of, you know, the software, all software costs money and the platform does so many more things than any other platform. If I can use the platform to not buy other software, then I've reduced my software spend. But I don't specifically manage the platform for non-inventory things. So we have the, you know, two different teams that manage the platform for the rest of the company. And they maybe could speak to things that they've used it for in that in that space. It's not something that I particularly do um, directly. So I don't know that I could speak to any, any way we've used big fix to, to address COVID. No, that's or even, fair. That's or even fair. working from home. I mean, our company yeah. works from home a lot. And so big fix works for that. And we haven't found any impediments to doing any of those things. Um, but, but I can't really speak to how it made us more, more mobile or we were able to outsource teams immediately that we hadn't planned for. Well, that's fair. That's fair. I appreciate that. So um, any last thoughts to talk to us about, uh, you know, as far as your experience? Um, well, when someone comes in and audits you, they're an expert, they're a third party, or they're an expert at all software. So they come in, they audit you, and they apply general, we're an expert at all software, we put in your data into the tool, our company does some back-end processes, sends me these results, and I know what to do with these results and how to bring this to you, at least from accounting software point of view. But when you have big fix inventory and you just have to solve for your software footprint, you can pull out and know more about your software the way it's deployed than the publisher, than any auditor does. And if you really invest in that and you get more, you get more familiar with your environment than anyone else coming in, they have to defer to you as the expert. So if you're not prepared for that and you're kind of creating it ad hoc, you know, then, you, then you're off balance for that. But 
you know, you said in the beginning, target your big five, you know, your big five is going to be a large spend, you know, a large amount of your spend, and then you can kind of tear down from that. And then you solve out all your one-time issues. What is not right that I can solve out and get at right and get into a virtual virtuous process. And then as soon as something changes, you let the person know who cares about that not being right. How did this get changed out? Who, you know, did this go through change control or cab or the software budget owner? How are they impacted? If you can let them know on the front end, stop bad processes from happening right away. You can you can stop those and then continue to cascade that down to, you know, 60, 70, 80% of your software that, that's even worth solving for. And then, you know, you, then you get all these one-time events done. You get your network groomed. You might pull out 25 to 30%, 40% of all the installed software in your environment, different environments. And now you have a much easier understanding. So when you go out and you have to say, okay, I'm going to solve for this publisher or this and this platform, there's a lot of noise to that. But as you keep solving one, it becomes more and more groomed. You get teams that are fully groomed or platform, you know, areas that are fully groomed. Something gets installed wrong. Now that sticks out like a sore thumb instead of just a bunch of noise. So you start grooming your environment so that if I don't expect it here, I need to know how it got here and solve it, put it in through an entry point so it comes in correctly. And then this should be considered right on the front end, right when your procurement's talking to, to make a purchase, right when someone's making a decision. How are we going to buy this? What is our preferred platform? What's our preferred database? What's our preferred platform to do this? Steer people towards that. And just, you know, they might say, well, let's go do this and let's grab a database. And they might not use the preferred platform because their people have the most experience with it. You can intercede early and say, hey, we can give you a little support here. You can start to have the team supporting things that are good at it. You get all of these shadow IT and subject matter experts that do six things and they're kind of the everything person for the team. They don't have to do so much of everything. So they can start to focus on the things that are making them money again because they can depend on you managing it all the way through. So you get a software product owner, you kind of make sure that they, they manage the other ones as part of the deal. And you can do that if you're decreasing the spend at the same time. Excellent, excellent. So. Um... Uh, before we get to our, our, our final thoughts here on, on, on the, uh, the conversation, uh, just one other question I had for you uh, around, um, uh, where was it, where was it, here we go. So if you think about, um, if you think about uh, big fix and especially big fix inventory, um, do you think you could be as successful at what you're doing today if you didn't have that, you know, big fix platform and, and inventory behind you. I know this is a shameless plug to ask for, but you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't just, you know, really get, you know, your your final thoughts on on what big fix inventory really has done for you currently and and, and historically. I mean, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that big fix for me personally has been a, a um, I don't know that I'd go so far as saying a life-changing software. But I will tell you, it's been a career-changing software. It's done. So, I've been able to do some incredible things uh, because of it, and I've been able to uh, provide value to organizations faster than I than you know I I truly thought I could by being able to take advantage of just what it can do. So now that I've uh, thrown you that kind of underhand you know softball question there, um, you know tell tell me about your your big fix inventory and and, and 
Well, yes. what I like about Big Fix Inventory is it does give you a valid point of view that you can depend on, that you can give to an auditor. And so I have been involved in many audits. And, you know, Deloitte does more audits than anyone else in the world. And if Deloitte takes a Big Fix Inventory report as valid, they don't have to put their tool on your environment and, and do a, a, a test because we know installing the tool and getting it to work correctly, that's hard. So I can't even imagine if I was on their side and I got to come in and collect data for a couple of days, go back and determine what that really is. It's a position. It may not be right. It's something. And if you have a better, more valid piece of information, most of your contracts say that you have to provide reporting for it. So you give them the reporting, they can maybe challenge it, but they don't get to just put their 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 software on and, and pull all that information that they want. They can say, okay, well, we want to test 25%. You're like, eh, let's go with 1%. And then maybe you, you know, let them test 3 to 5% of your environment. If it's what you said it is, they don't get to look anymore. They get to look at just the data you provided. And, um, and, and so from there, the platform itself does so many complementary things. So when we talk about unused software and clawing it back, the platform will just do that right away, just part of the process. The platform will do the patching and the updates. The patching, the, the platform can do other things that align so well with software asset management. And the team that supports it, they have they have this visibility. They understand how it works into the process. So Big Fix Inventory gives you the information that you can depend on for sure. And in fact, you can ignore most publishers. Most publishers will walk in, they'll bring an auditor, they'll say, we need all this stuff. Give me this. Give me that. You don't have to give them anything. You set up a direct channel to give it maybe a, a delivery site directly to the auditor. You don't have to give the publisher anything. You keep all your information secret from the publisher unless you feel like sharing it, but not necessarily in an audit situation. And then you give the auditor just enough information to validate what your contract has, says you have to validate. It's one source of truth that you can depend on, that you can depend on more than them, and then they validate it, they have to walk away. So you take your big five, you do an internal audit, you pre-validate it right before the renewal, and then you do your renewal, you know, whatever it is, and they're like, how'd you pick these numbers? You're like, I got the report, it said exactly this, we renewed based on this piece of information, because they're always auditing the process. Okay, what's your process, and are you overusing our product? Well, if your process is I depend on this, and then this is always accurate for the auditor, problem solved. Problem solved. I think we'll we'll end it right there on that. So um, uh, we'll bring Dan in back uh, back on, and uh, um, we'll uh, we'll finish up our chat here in Virgil. I, I appreciate your your insights, and it's been a, a pleasure to uh, talk with you today. And uh, Dan, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Virgil, for uh, sharing your uh, experience and insights. Uh, Virgil, I, I'm, I, I can't kind of get past that anecdote about turning a $4.3 million cost center into a $5 million profit center. Um, it's, it's tremendous uh, hearing your insights and experience in the field. Um, so everyone else, uh, if you're facing a software asset management uh, challenge, and we'd like to know how Big Fix Inventory can help you solve uh, those challenges while saving you time and resources and money, I'd like to invite you to head over to bigfix.com and you can reach out to us via the contact us button. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions you may have there. We can set up a demo, et cetera, anything you, you would like. Uh, you can also find the Big Fix inventory data sheet there so you can do your own research and, and kind of check things out for yourself. 
once again, I'd really like to thank uh, Mr. Dan Corcoran for leading this discussion. And a very, very big thank you to Mr. Virgil Prather for lending us your time and your expertise. Um, so, and thank you all for joining us and we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, we'll see you in our next webinar and until then stay safe and healthy. Take care. See you soon. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you found this content valuable. Remember to check the show notes if you want to see the content in its original video form. Endpoint Management Today is the brainchild of James Stewart and Rhonda Student Kaiser. Our podcast is inexpertly edited by James and Rhonda, though becoming more expert all the time. Original music from Dan Corcoran, Big Fix Specialist and All Around Renaissance Man.